0: God and Father, as we turn now this Christmas Eve to your word, I pray that you would be near us and speaking to us through it, that you would be with us, though we are sinful people, and that you would be with me, though I'm a sinful man, as I proclaim it. pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You just have to note, first of all, I was thinking about it in the silences in the prayer that it is an especially sweet thing to hear little ones' voices crying and things on this night in particular. But... It's Christmas Eve, right? As we said at the beginning, Merry Christmas, if you weren't here. It's a sweet and exciting time, and I always love anticipating Christmas and things, but also, it always feels a little complicated for me. And at the risk of being a Grinch, I want to name that. As I was thinking about this, I don't, I don't mean, first of all, look, holidays are complicated for... At for many of us because of, you know, there's losses, there's hard things we've had in our lives, there's people that are there or that aren't there that should be, you know, longing for how things used to be. If if you're in that place, I see you and I recognize that, but that's not what I mean. What I mean is just usually by like the 23rd or 24th, there's this kind of creeping dread that I start to feel, even as I look forward to Christmas, And it's because even in the most unreservedly happy, everything goes smoothly, everyone's there, no family members are feuding with each other, like good Christmas, it's a day, and then there's the 26th of December. Or maybe you can kind of push it off because you get a little time off and you've got New Year's plans, but then it's January, which is... January, like the worst month, right? It's, it's cold and spring's still a long way away, and all of the sparkling snow that the kids were excited about on Christmas is slush on the ground, and you're just like, Pfft. that. I kind of feel that impending as I approach Christmas. And um, yeah, and that's just there in my heart. And the thing that's interesting to me about that tension and that feeling is that I feel like that's a tension that exists within the holiday of Christmas itself. There is... So, so we have these two pairs of kind of seasons of preparation and waiting and then seasons of celebration in the way that the church historically celebrated the calendar. And so you had Advent and you had Lent and then you would have Christmastide and Easter, which are the seasons of celebration. And, you know, Christmas and Easter mark the days. And I feel like Lent and Easter and th- that season, that's sort of unreservedly like it's heavy and then it's happy. But Christmas throughout Advent, we've been talking about Waiting. And we've said that um, Advent is a season of waiting, both to celebrate Jesus' birth and for his return. And the thing about Christmas is that we're only celebrating half of that being realized in our world. That as much as we rejoice that Jesus has come, it doesn't mean that that waiting is over. If anything, maybe it's just a reminder that Jesus isn't here physically with us now, even though his spirit's moving, even though he's at work in the world, that this is not yet the world that should be, and so we long for what is yet to come. We are in, in a sense, the January of creation as we long for spring. And so I just want to reflect a little bit on that kind of waiting, the waiting for Jesus that continues at Christmas, and I want to use the character of Simeon, who we just heard about, to do that. So from Luke chapter 2, I'm going to reread the parts of this story, but if you start in verse 22, it says this. It says, When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So what Mary and Joseph do here was something that was just normal for every Jewish family in their world. Within the Old Testament law, there's this idea that the firstborn of everything are supposed to be marked out for God to remind us that ultimately everything comes from him. So for animals, that meant that you would offer them as sacrifices. And for the firstborn of, um, of humans, then you would offer a sacrifice at the temple thanking God and dedicating them particularly to God. And that's what they do, this is a normal thing. The only thing that stands out about it is the fact that if you go back to Leviticus and see the laws that are laid down, they're actually offering the sacrifice that's for the poor. So there would be a normal sacrifice and then if you couldn't afford that, you would offer what they do, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. But beyond noting again the poverty of this family, This is normal, so they go up to the temple. And again, there's probably other families doing this. Everyone in Israel would do this. Then verse 25, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And so we meet Simeon. Simeon is a man, we assume he's an old man, it doesn't tell us exactly how old, but he has been waiting his whole life for the consolation of Israel. And so to understand what Simeon is waiting for and longing for, you have to understand um, in in the eyes of these Israelites back in the first century that were around Jesus, they viewed themselves as having, in a sense, been in exile for a very long time. So there was this thing that we call the exile that happened about 400 years before Jesus, where Israel was led off into captivity and for 70 years lived in captivity, and then they were restored, but in the eyes of most of the people around Jesus, it was not really restoration. They did get to come back and live in the land, but they did not have a king sitting on the throne. They were under the control of these foreign empires, most recently Rome in Jesus's day, and and, and so they, they had never really come back. They were a shadow of their former glory. And that's true politically for people like Simeon, but it's also true on a deeper level. Throughout the Old Testament, the idea of Israel was always to be this group of people that serve this missionary purpose. They're supposed to be God's light in the darkness of the world so that the nations can look at them and see the ways that they live and obey God and serve and love each other and care for the world and the land that they've been placed in. And so they would be directed to give glory back to God over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. That's the theme. And Israel is not doing that at all. It's not just that they're under captivity, but it's that their sin and rebellion and idolatry have actually caused them fundamentally to fail at that mission, to fail to show forth God's glory and be that light that they're supposed to be. And so all of that is what Simeon is waiting to end, this hope. That we see in the prophets of this Messiah who would come to get God's mission back on track. To restore God's people in relationship with him. To deal with their sin and to finally bring them back to that place that they were always meant to be. And Israel and Simeon had been waiting a long time. I feel like biblical characters are sometimes mythological to us, but let's assume Simeon is pretty old, because as we're going to see in a few minutes, he's waiting to die, and I don't think many people my age are in that place where they're going to say, Lord, now I can depart in peace. But... Um, his whole life right and the life of his parents and grandparents for generations back he's been waiting for this thing and he had some sort of word or understanding from God we don't have a lot of details that he would not die before he got to see the consolation of Israel arrive but the years pass and the decades pass and he goes to the temple day by day and he sees the soldiers standing on their street corners and he sees the corruption and brokenness all around him and he had to feel that tension and that struggle he had to be in that place of just saying really And of doubting and wrestling and struggling to wait and to believe. That is Simeon. He comes up to the temple and he encounters Jesus. And somehow that same spirit that revealed to him that he would not die before he saw God's Messiah moves in him again. And everything changes as he takes that baby up in his arms. And he declares this blessing over him. The first part of it starts in verse 30. He says, Lord, Now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. So Simeon names several things in this hope that he sees in Jesus. First of all, he declares that he now sees God's salvation arriving, a salvation he's prepared in the presence of all people. He sees in Jesus a hope of of restoration, of finally being brought back from exile, finally being the people of God that they're meant to be. And we see particularly that that salvation and rescue that God is working for Simeon is about that deeper purpose of Israel. He says that finally Israel will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. So it's, again, not just some political salvation, but he says, finally, our relationship with God is going to be restored, and our sin is finally going to be dealt with, and we will begin to be living as the people that we are supposed to be, showing forth God's glory, being a light to the nation. So Simeon declares this hope he sees in Jesus, and it sounds awesome and exciting, and at this point, Mary and Joseph have to be like, I probably one, they're like, who is this? But beyond that, they're like, wow, this is pretty, pretty thrilling. But he doesn't stop there. Keep reading. Verse 33. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So Mary and Joseph are wondering and then Simeon blesses them It's a strange blessing. And he says, first of all, that this baby is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. And so it's not as simple as saying, oh, he's going to come and everything's going to be better. There's this rising and that's hopeful, but there's also a falling. That in Jesus, the order of things are going to be shaken up. And that while the lowly will be lifted up, the high will also be toppled. That's not a sort of unreservedly cheery picture. And then he says he will be a sign that is spoken against. So he's not just going to shake things up. But some people, presumably those people who are falling, are going to speak against him and oppose him. And he's going to face real challenge and Opposition. Jesus himself uses the image of himself as a cornerstone, both that some people build the temple upon and that other people fall on or have fall on them and are crushed. And ultimately, then there's grief even to Mary herself. A sword will pierce your own soul too, which is almost certainly a reference to the crucifixion. And man, Mary and Joseph have to be thinking, wait a minute, like that's a hard turn. That is not where this blessing seems to be going. Simeon comes and declares this joyous good tidings to the nations and that a sword is going to pierce their hearts. Here theologically is what Simeon understands, what many people around him didn't, but what he did. In Simeon's day, the uh, people around him, Old Testament Israel, they thought of history as happening in two stages, in two stages. So there's this age, and then there is the age to come. And so this age is the age where everything's bad, and where sin is ascendant, and where Satan is on the move, and where the nations are opposing God and standing up against him. This age is the age of darkness, and everything's terrible. And then there's this age that will come, When things will be made right, and when all things will be made new, and uh, for them, Israel will be restored to their purpose, and the nations will come to glorify God, and his glory will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. They have the sense that history happens in those two ages, and they expected that pivot point between those two ages to be the coming of the Messiah. They had this clear sense of what would happen is that it's the bad times, and then God's Savior will come, and then it will immediately be the good times. And I'll just note... They're incorrect about that. I don't think most of us have that view of history because living 2,000 years after Jesus and things still being pretty broken, we kind of get that that's not quite right, although I think we can be confused about that. But I think a lot of us still think this way personally, I have to know. Like there's, I know a lot of people that have the sense that that's sort of how meeting Jesus is supposed to happen in your life, right? That there's sort of the this age before him when everything's dark and terrible, and then he comes, and then it's sort of the age to come for us, and everything's supposed to be better, and we're supposed to be happy, and everything's supposed to be whole. But to us, in terms of our life, and to the people around him, Simeon actually paints a different picture. He says, no... He says that what's actually happening in God's Messiah is that the age to come has arrived and is arriving, but that this age is not yet over. That there's an overlap of the ages. This is what some theologians call this kind of era, but that what actually happens in history is that when Jesus comes, the new age begins, but the old age is is not yet done, and so all of us in this age exist in that kind of ambiguity that Simeon paints for Mary and Joseph. All of us, on the one hand, are seeing God's salvation born out in the earth, and we're seeing him at work in the world, and we still see the brokenness and the darkness and feel the struggle and the tension. That's why Christmas feels so ambiguous to us because we're celebrating the fact that the age to come has arrived but we all know in our guts and if you just open your eyes and look around we know that this age has not yet ended and there's still much that is wrong in the world. So here's the question I just want to ask. What do we do with that as we wait? What do we do with that tension? And I just want to say two things that come directly from that picture that Simeon paints and scripture paints but two things to us and the first is that we simply need to recognize that the work of salvation is not finished. God's work of salvation is not finished in the world or in our lives. There is this sort of triumphalism that I think can creep into Christianity sometimes. And there's extreme forms of triumphalism. You've got this sort of like, you know like the prosperity preacher guys on the smiling on the book jackets that think that you know god's going to like heal every disease and give you your mcmansion or whatever and you've got sort of a political triumphalism there's these big picture triumphalisms that people have that think that because jesus has come then we should just be winning and everything should be easy and we don't have to struggle with sin or brokenness or pain or disease or death and there's a sort of personal triumphalism that we can wrongly start to believe The idea that I sometimes feel that, you know, I'm wrestling with something again, or I wake up discouraged again, and I'm just like, man, shouldn't things be better by this point? Like, you know, if not maybe when I was saved, like, I've been walking with Jesus for a while, like, shouldn't things be improved? Does it really have to still be this way? And that sort of triumphalism is challenged directly by the reality that that's just not the age that we live in. It takes the first half of Simeon's blessing without the second half, and it leads to discouragement and confusion about our lives. Just consider our struggle with sin. I think it is very easy for me to take the fact that I am struggling as a sign of failure in the Christian life. To say, man, like, I'm trying, and there's days I'm succeeding, but there's days that I'm not, and I am really wrestling, and this is hard. And I look at that and say, I am a failure, but actually that's saying that what I should be doing is just living in the age to come. The reality is that in the overlap of the ages, a struggle between light and darkness is the way that things are meant to be. In fact, in the Christian life, struggle is a sign of success, and it's when you're not struggling, but you've got to be really worried. But but that hardness is actually just a part of the way that this life and world is meant to work in this age, and what we are called to is faithfulness. The Bible repeatedly uses the image of running the race for what Christian faithfulness looks like in this age, for running a marathon. And that's supposed to tell us something about our expectations, because you don't think 15 miles into a marathon, like, man, like I'm, I'm struggling, so therefore I must be failing to run it. That's just what it means to run 15 miles out of 26, right? This shows you how many marathons I've run, but... Um, <laughs> It, that, that 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 it's a feature of following Jesus it's a sign of the fact that we are seeking faithfulness that there are days when we feel battered or discouraged or where we struggle so if you struggle this christmas and always i just want to say welcome to the club that is actually the way that the christian life feels our calling in this age is not victory it is to faithfully endure so the work of salvation is not finished But it's also Christmas, guys, and it's also important to recognize in that reality of the two ages that the work of salvation has begun. That in the arrival ...of God in the child Jesus Christ. And in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he has worked salvation for us. He has come to make God known for us. He lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we should have died. He rose again to give us new life. And all of that has been accomplished even as we feel the darkness and pain and tension in this age. And there is a sense in which God's salvation is yet to be fully realized... But there is also a sense in which it is really at work powerfully in the world and in our lives. And I would just say, I mean, all I have to say to that is like, one, just personally, that's a reality because people like us have been drawn in and are following Jesus, right? Just just personally, in terms of our sin and our brokenness and our undeservingness, the fact That we're all here together and that we're seeking to follow him and grow and pursue him is a sign that that salvation is breaking out in the world and the age to come is coming. And that's true big picture too. I just, I feel like we lose sight of this sometimes, but the part of me that likes history and stuff just feels the need to say like, you know, Simeon's here and he's like, the light to the nations is finally coming, right? He's arrived and you know, the Gentiles are going to be gathered in and somehow we're like, man, that would be nice. But like, I'm not Jewish, and in fact, when this was happening, because I'm German, basically, I mean, my ancestors were in, like, North Russia, sacrificing their babies to pagan gods, right? Like, you know, they didn't even probably know that they existed, Simeon wouldn't have. But that people like me, also on the other side of the planet, which they didn't know existed, are gathering together, worshiping Jesus' name, both in our lives and in the world around us. God is at work, and his salvation is... on the move that in Jesus God has come to his people and so as much as we feel that this ageness as much as it is still the January of this of this world what we're called to remind ourselves of is Christmas is that the age to come has arrived and it is growing and that one day this age will pass away when Jesus returns and all things are made new if I can picture it another way when I think about Christmas, I often think about this moment in uh, The Return of the King, the third book of the Lord of the Rings. And I usually avoid Lord of the Rings analogies because it makes me sound like a nerd. But basically, you have to understand. So Gandalf, who is this kind of wizard angel guy, who he fights this uh, shadow demon called a Balrog and is cast down into the pit and he dies ish and then but he returns after he battles the Balrog and is brought back to life and this is why it makes me sound nerdy and another in minus Tirith I feel like I'm just digging myself in which is the city and the forces of Mordor this evil kingdom are coming marching out against them anyway but so Gandalf died and is back again and the armies are coming out and the city around them is despairing but Pippin one of the hobbits he declares this he says no my heart will not yet despair Gandalf fell and has returned and is with us, we may stand if only on one leg or at least be left still upon our knees. So Pippin's here looking out with everybody else at the the massed armies of the darkness that are roiling out coming against the city and everyone else is despairing because they're looking at them but he looks at Gandalf and he says you know like I don't know what's coming but I know that Gandalf died and he's here again with me and it's in that confidence that I have the power to stand and in a real sense that is Christmas that we today say that while we long for Jesus's return And while so much is still broken in the world, we recognize that he has come and that he has died and he has risen again, that God has come to dwell with us in him. And because of that work, we can stand, if only on our knees. So that's what I invite you to do tonight and tomorrow as we celebrate this Christmas. Don't pretend first that you need to hide the darkness. This age has not fully ended and Christmas does not need to be a time when we pretend like the shadows and griefs and hard parts of life have disappeared. We can confront the darkness, but we do that standing on the fact that the age to come has arrived, that Jesus has arrived, and this age is passing away, and light is coming into the darkness, and in the end will triumph. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus Christ, you came. To us, God of God, come as a human being, draw near to us to work life and salvation, to bring light into the darkness. And Lord, we celebrate that light as we've seen it appearing, and we celebrate the fact that it is undefeatable and unstoppable. And we grieve the fact that it is not yet fully realized. But we pray, come, Lord Jesus, in the full confidence that in the fullness of time you will. And we rest on you now in the hope that you provide. Pray all of this in your name, Jesus Christ You who are with us, even in the overlap of the ages. Amen. All right. Friends, uh, just a word about how this will go then. This is uh, many of yours, and my favorite part of Christmas Eve celebrations as we're going to pass the light of Jesus. This is, in many ways, an embodiment of the reality um, that we just talked about. That the world is a dark place, and in just a minute the sanctuary is gonna be darkened here. The world is a dark place, but that the light has come into the darkness, it's come in the Christ candle, and that it is at work even in this age, bringing the light of the age to come. Very practically, here's the thing to explain to you. Um, and can I? I should have gotten a second candle. So here's the thing you need to understand your candle will be lit the other person comes in like this to light their candle. Because if you do this with the lit candle, it will end badly. And then at the end of the time, and like 90% of this is for my kids, um, you can blow it out, but kind of blow straight down and be careful with the hot wax. With that said, friends, we're going to um, join together in singing Silent Night, and we're going to pass the light of Jesus Christ as we hope for him. Stand with me, please. I live-